Well, holy shit, I actually managed to do it. After procrastinating for ages, I finally managed to produce an audiobook version of the Lunatic Fringe book. It's currently available on all Amazon sites, audible.com, and shortly on iTunes. And if you're the page-turning type, it's also, of course, still available in Kindle form, paperback, and uh, hardback on Amazon. Ten hours and ten years worth of Blue Skies Magazine's articles, all available to you right fucking now, including a few author's notes and even an apology or two. Enjoy. Blue skies cool. They seduce us, pulling us irresistibly upwards, reminding us to fly our own line, on our wings, and in life. We are the seekers, adventurers, being one with the air, feeling everything and nothing at once. That's the magic we chase. Follow the call. Find your pure wild flight with NZ Aerosports. Of course, I absolutely love the NZ Aerosports business model. I mean, come on. One glance at an Icarus fuck yeah sticker and you know it lines up perfectly with the fucking pilot mentality. But outside their wonderful use of colorful language and a great company vibe, there's a long list of reasons to say NZ Aerosports fuck yeah. NZ Aerosports blows me away right out of the gate as a canopy manufacturer with a bold offer. They give you 10 jumps on your brand new nylon to decide if you want to keep it swap it out, or even return it for a refund. I mean, seriously, how incredible is that? That's like getting halfway through a prom and deciding you prefer the slightly racier date that goes down faster. Seriously, they do that. If you're not madly in love with your new canopy after 10 jumps, they'll let you swap it out for another size or model, or even get your money back. And the range of canopies they've got? Man, they've got a style canopy to fit every jumper and every situation with models you know and trust. Like the Sapphire 3, the perfect choice for the beginner or intermediate canopy pilot. The Crossfire 3, when you're ready to kick it up that elliptical notch. The JFX 2, if you're looking to up your new swoop game. The Leia, as the workhorse and dirt water dirt beast. Or the Petra. The Petra cranks out crazy power and is nothing short of a record breaker. But hey, it's not always about speed either. Take the Kraken. Built as a low-pack volume canopy, specifically with wingsuiting in mind, she gives you all the performance you're looking for with the reliability you need that'll have you itching for that next formation, rodeo, or puffy cloud. So, the equipment is top-of-the-line kick-ass stuff, as you already know, but how about the team? Well, the customer service gang is there to sort you out whenever you need them. Maddie and Beto are always there to help with Jen holding the reins. They're available for you at sales at nzaerosports.com, and they've got a kick-ass live chat tool on the website if you're wanting to hit someone up right away. These are the crew you're going to want to talk to to get those custom orders in. With the stock nylon, once you know what you want, they'll have that shit on a FedEx truck as soon as the credit card machine says approved and get you in the air in no time. For your custom orders, you'll be able to get a time frame for building and shipping when you design it, so get to it. And demos. They've got demos in the U.S. available from their partner Rock Sky Market. The whole U.S. demo fleet is there with Sapphire 3, Crossfire 3, Kraken, JFX2, and Leia canopies in a range of sizes. They also offer student and tandem demos in the U.S. Bottom line, every step of the way, NZ Aerosports is there to get you what you need, and I personally couldn't be happier to be teamed up with them here on Lunatic Fringe. And now, time to get started with Lunatic Fringe Into the Void, brought to you proudly by NZ Aerosports. Fuck yeah! Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go! Back in the can for another edition of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void with a hell of a guest that I'm just going to dive straight into. No preamble on this one. Tell me, who the fuck are you and what do you do? My name's Guy Manis. I'm a lifelong skydiver, tunnel flyer, currently an options trader, and always a filmmaker. 
Nice. Nice. You know, it's kind of funny too. People, uh, the, the newer generations coming up might not know the name, but I guarantee they know the shit that you've done. Yep. You've been a busy guy. Yep. My, my first movie was cliffhanger. And then the first script I ever wrote, um, you know, they tell you when you write a script that you've got to move out to Los Angeles and you've got to wait tables or park cars for five years. And you, you know, you've got to pedal your script and push it all around. Uh, I typed the end. And within a couple of weeks, we had a deal at Merv Griffin Productions to make the movie. Awesome. And then Merv ended up selling it to Paramount. And, uh, you know, from there, it got turned into a $72 million movie, which was a really big budget back in those days. I mean, it's still a pretty good sized budget now, but for your first shot out the gate, that's insane. Yep. First shot out. It was, it was, and I, you know, I didn't know any better. And, uh, and so I'm walking into all these meetings with, you know, big time directors and movie stars. And I thought, Oh, this is what the movie business is like. So sure. I was really fortunate, really fortunate. I mean, isn't that kind of how it goes though? You You don't know that you're not supposed to be able to do that. So you just do it. Absolutely. That's and, and, and we had a, we had another uh, another ace up our sleeve, and I, I didn't I didn't really realize what it meant until years later. But Norman Kent and I had made this movie in '86, and we split it into two parts. Norman took the skydiver market and made a movie called From Wings Came Flight. And it was a, a VHS that you would pop into your deck and it was, you know, you'd play it at a skydiver party and stuff and, and watch it. And then I took the other market, the the civilian market, and made a documentary for the A&E network. You know, that A&E channel on cable? Absolutely. And, and we called that part Flight of the Dream Team. But if you if you watch both shows, you'll see that it's, you know, 80% all the same material, but just one took a slant toward the skydivers and the other took a slant toward uh, the commercial audience. Sure. And so we had this, this video uh, when I started trying to get this script done. And so we took it to the producer at Merv Griffin Productions and uh, we, we took the script and he said, uh, no, get out. And I, and we said, well, no, wait, wait, wait a minute, check out this video. And uh, we thought that he would watch it for, you know, two or three minutes. And um, he watched the whole half hour. And when the half hour was over, he said, run that again. (laughs) We knew, (laughs) we knew that we had something going. So he said, okay, I was wrong. You're right. We're going to make, we're going to write this script. And so we we wrote this script called drop zone. And then we took it to these two uh, big shot producers that he knew in Hollywood. And they said, no. And we said, no, wait, 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 watch the video, watch this video. And they called up and they go, okay, you were, you were wrong. Uh, we, you know, you, we were wrong. You were right. Uh, let, let's do this. And so then they took us to a big shot at Paramount Pictures. And he said, no, no, get out. And uh, we said, no, no, wait, you got to watch this video. <laughs> and, uh, and the same thing happened. And then he took it to his boss and then to his boss, the, the woman who ran the whole studio, Sherry Lansing, Everybody, same story. They say no. They watch the video. They say yes. And then uh, we went to movie stars. Same thing. Uh, Sylvester Sloan wanted to do it. Michael Douglas wanted to do it. Uh, Steven Seagal was negotiating for it for a while. And then Wesley Snipes. And and the same thing happened with all these guys. They read the script. They say, no, get out. Don't come back. And then they see the video and they say, wait, 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 come, come on back. Right. And so it was the it was the visuals that we had to offer them that intrigued them because we had we had tandem, we had wind tunnel, we had big ways, we had you know competition, we had canopy stacking, everything that we could think of we put in that movie if you remember and uh, and it all paid off because all those elements ended up in the in the big movie. Which is absolutely amazing. And I I, I want to jump, uh, um, we'll come back to Drop Zone, but I want to jump back to the beginning because obviously you had to have a solid base in everything skydiving long before you got to that point. So how the hell did you get your start in jumping? Okay, fourth grade, <laughs> uh, they, had book, they had a book in the library. And so uh, when I was in fourth grade, I knew what a May West was. I knew what a streamer was. I knew what an arch was and what a, what the frog position was. I knew all this stuff from reading this fourth grade book. Then a few years later, I'm at a 
fireworks display in a high school football stadium. Mm. And the plane goes over and they've got this great announcer and he's telling us what's happening. And he shows us the plane as it flies over. And these guys fly way over the stadium and way out to the horizon. And they jump out. You know, it it seemed like 10 miles away with these round parachutes that were called uh, paracommanders, PCs. Mm. Yep. And as soon as they open, the the, uh, announcer goes, oh, and it looks like a perfect spot. And they're going to come land right on the 50 yard line. And everyone in the stadiums looking at each other and going, I, I don't think these guys are going to let, I mean, they were, they were sinking down the horizon. Right. And sure enough, every one of them came in and did a stand up right on the 50 yard line with PCs. And, and my, my jaw was on the ground and, and all I could think was I am going to do this one day. So then a few years later, I'm in high school and there's this career day you know, where a doctor comes in and tells you what it's like to be a doctor and a lawyer comes in, you know, all these different people. Sure. And uh, Bobby Gates comes in from the Cleveland Sport Parachute Club and shows us a 16 millimeter film because there was no videotape in those days. Shows us a 16 millimeter film, hands out his business card, hands out his brochure and tells us how when we're all old enough that we can come to his place and jump. Well, I, I grabbed that brochure and, you know, clutched it in my fist and kept it until I was old enough. And then at 18, I went out and and made that jump and uh, then relocated down to Florida to go back to school and picked it up at Homestead, Florida, where I made my first, uh, you know, thousand jumps or so. Wow. Well, and, and Florida, especially then was Mecca. I mean, that's where yeah. you went. Yep. And, and it was also, not only was it the Mecca of the skydiving industry, it was also the Mecca of the drug smuggling trade. <laughs> and, so, and so my first rig, I should say, not my first rig, my first rig that was a, that had a square in it was, uh, it was back when vectors were called wonder hogs. Yep. Yep. And, and I bought the wonder hog of a guy who went down to South America and never came home. <laughs> and his girlfriend was a skydiver and, you know, it had been, one month, three months, six months. And so finally she s- decides to sell this dude's rig. And that was my first rig was a, a drug smuggler gone bad. Holy shit. And, uh, and I love that rig. I, well, I, I think I slept with that rig. I, yeah, I mean, it. everybody is kind of, at least uh, from my generation on back has heard the stories of, of how a lot of the aircraft and stuff got into skydiving and how a lot of money got into skydiving. But I don't think the newer generation realizes what close ties the entire sport of skydiving owes to drug smugglers. It, it was, it was such a fun period. And, you know, later years <laughs> later, I was, I was like the, you know, big shot, big way organizer. Right. And, and so we would be at uh, a boogie where there were, you know, three DC threes lined up and I'm organizing the big way for the morning. And I need all three of these planes here in the morning. And then at sunset, two of them take off (laughs) and it's the end of the day. We're done jumping. And then these planes take off and fly off over the horizon. And, And I go to the drop zone under, Hey man, you know, those are my airplanes. I need those things tomorrow. Oh no, they're just going out for some maintenance. They'll be right back, you know. <laughs> and the next morning at 6 a.m., they'd roll in and and you know, nobody nobody ever said anything, but we yeah. all knew that they'd been that they'd been working that night. Of course. I mean, uh, as a as a longtime jump pilot now, I've had many a conversation of would you have if you were flying back then? And it was a, it's always a good giggle because everybody knew that that was the side hustle for, you know, for everything that that's how all these big aircraft got started in skydiving because they were doing some other stuff. Yep. We had a, we had a Lodestar that would just roll into Homestead completely unannounced. And, you know, they'd say, who wants to make a jump? And, you know, I was kind of the organizer guy and I'd say, well, you know, what's the minimum load? How, how many, you know, how many people do you need? Get, Don't worry about that. Let's just get some <laughs> jump on, on the books, you know, so, <laughs> so that we can, <laughs> yep. and I, I understood and I said, okay, man, we're doing an eight way out of a load star, you know, and uh, you anything to, so that they could say that they were uh, employed, gainfully employed as legitimate uh, jump. Sure. Shit. 
So you started jumping down at Homestead. Uh, um, when first off, what did the family think of you jumping out of airplanes? Because this is back when it's still my favorite skydiving T-shirt. When sex was safe and skydiving was dangerous. Um, yes, it was. You know. So and what? Is, what does the family think of you taking up skydiving? My parents were thrilled that I did it. It was a great <laughs> story to tell at dinner and stuff like that. But then when I started, you know, trying to save money to buy equipment and then trying to bum money off my parents to buy equipment. You know, my dad looked at me, he goes, he goes, Hey, I'm not supporting this, right. <laughs> you know? And, uh, and so I, you know, I had to, I had to struggle with them for that. And what was funny about it is that even when we, you know, when I, when I started appearing in the magazines and, you know, in commercials and, um, and even when we won the world meet in 85, uh, really didn't get a big reaction. But then that world meet landed me three guest appearances on the old Merv Griffin show. <laughs> and suddenly all my skydiving was legit and everything, you know. <laughs> yeah, because Merv said it was. Yeah, because Merv said that it was that it was cool. And so suddenly uh, all, all was forgiven. And I was introduced as my son, the skydiving champion. So how funny is that? Because, I mean, I grew up, uh, half of my listeners, if not more than half, have no fucking clue who Merv Griffin is. But I grew <laughs> I grew up on, you know, watching that. So I wonder if all those years ago I, I, I saw you on that show. It's definitely possible. Yeah, I used to do the, uh, it, was, it was right in sync with uh, Tandem, uh, you know, get, being let loose on the world. And so sure. I was the tandem instructor to the stars wow and uh, and it made it made for great shows on Merv's show and he read the fan mail and knew that there was something to this skydiving and that's why he greenlit the writing of the script because he had a, a fledgling film division at that time and so he he said I, there's something about this skydiving that's marketable let's exploit it See, that's insane to me that that now, especially because of the movie that we're talking about, and we'll definitely get into it more, but because of that movie, that movie spawned an entire generation of skydivers. Uh, that and Point Break were the two pivotal movies in most, uh, especially my generation's uh, upbringing in skydiving. To find out that that's all tied to Merv Griffin, is yeah. awesome. that's awesome. Yeah. And uh, his son is my best buddy. And we, you know, I took him jumping for the show and uh, he was one of the, the, uh, one of my writing team uh, nice. on drop. Nice. Now, what was your first gig in skydiving? First gig in skydiving. Okay. So I made, I made like my first hundred, maybe two or 300 jumps the regular way, just, you know, just paying my way and, and loving it. And, um, then right, or, right around 150 jumps is where I really got bit. I mean, it, it really, it really stole my soul. Mm. And it was all I could think about when I'm sitting in classes in college, I'm sitting there doodling skydiving formations while I'm supposed to be taking notes. Sure. And sure. the nice thing about being in Miami is that there's a huge commercial market there for commercials. Yeah. In fact, all of Europe comes over to Miami during their winter, our, well, it's our winter too, but it's, it's still sunny and blue. Sure. And so the Italians, the Germans that, you know, they all come over to shoot their commercials. And so I got a yogurt commercial and a blue jeans commercial. And uh, I think a couple cigarette commercials back then. And those were my first paying gigs. And then by 82, there was this new thing out called AFF, hmm. um, where you, you know, where you held uh, your student in free fall and helped him through his first free fall rather than putting him out on static line. And so I was, uh, I was one of the first people to get that rating. It was a very, it was very much a brand new thing. And it was cool. Cause I got it uh, from one of the founders, Rocky hmm. Evans. Awesome. And, uh, and so we started doing AFF down in Homestead and it wasn't like I was being paid because I was racking up a bigger bill at the manifest than I was <laughs> in being paid as a jump master. So I never saw any of the money, but right. I started jumping for free uh, basically at that point. And then that kind of snowballed until I started uh, getting uh, published in the magazines and 
gear sponsorships and things like that. And then after the world meet, it was pretty much a free ride, you know, anywhere I went. Of course, I was coaching and organizing and and working it, but uh, you know, I wasn't digging digging into my pocket anymore. Sure. Well, and it's pretty but, wild that that all transitioned into uh, um, doing the script writing and stuff. Because again, back then, skydiving was still very far from mainstream. I mean, it, it was still considered what most people would have called a very extreme activity. And nowadays it's very mainstream. So it, it was a different time. Yeah. It, it, it was perfect for me in that script because no one had seen tandem. Hmm. No one had seen a wind tunnel. No one had seen canopy stacking and no one had seen the, the really big ways. Sure. And, sure. and so to, to come into Hollywood with these images to pedal and, of course, telling them that I'm the only person on the planet who can give them those images. It, you know, it, it was a nice, uh, a, a smooth, a smooth way in. Sure. Well, now, what, where did the original idea spawn to sit down and write a Scott Eving based movie? It was um, Tony Griffin, Merv's son, and I had written a bunch of treatments. Now, a, a treatment is like a one or two page version of the movie. Okay. And what you do is you, you try to hustle those around. And if you're lucky, someone will pay you to write the 110 page version of the same story. And so we had this, uh, we had this skydiving based uh, treatment uh, in our portfolio. And when I went on the Merv show, I got introduced to the producer who was also the head writer of the Merv Griffin film department. And so we stepping stoned it from there. Now, what was the first Merv Griffin uh, um, uh, experience like? What was what was the reason that he had you on? What was going on? It was because um, it was because we had just won the world meet, and we had beat the Soviet Union. Oh. And you know they had never come to a world meet before, and they yet they claimed all the records in competition. And mm. so like, let's say the golden Knights would set a new record and, you know, do a, a 11 points in four way. And they would announce this world record in parachutist magazine. And then the Soviets would come out and say, Oh yeah, we did a 12 at one of our own meets. Mm. And of course there's no one there. There's no other countries there to say whether this happened or not, but all of a sudden there's this presence in, in out there in the force that there's this, you know, badass Soviet team that's, one step ahead of the Americans. Sure. And so when we uh, went over to Yugoslavia and finally competed against these guys and won, it was a big deal for America. I mean, I got a letter from Ronald Reagan and, <laughs> you know, it, it, it was, it was a big thing. And so being world champion got me my, uh, my entree to the Merv Griffin show. And then of course the idea that I could take some of his, you know, television and movie stars for a jump, you know, that was even better. Sure. And, and so the first time that the country saw tandem was on the Merv Griffin show, which in, in, I can say in terms, in terms of television, there were a few shots of it in like the national Enquirer and the national star, you know, there sure. were a few tandem shots there, but uh, it was the Merv show where people first saw somebody strap somebody on and take them for a jump. That's pretty crazy forward thinking of that show in that time. Cause I mean, especially back then when, when they didn't have the numbers that we have now and all the statistics that we have now to throw a famous or semi-famous person out of an airplane, not really knowing what's going to go down. That's pretty ballsy of somebody like Merv to, to um, be so forward thinking. He, he was. And I mean, you're talking about the guy who invented Wheel of Fortune, right, who invented Jeopardy and owned all of them. You know, I mean, this this guy was, you know, on the ball and he he knew how uh, terrifying skydiving was because I dragged his son out a couple of times. <laughs> and and so he he just uh, he, he smelled money. And, uh, you know, we did we did those shows and it was it was, you know, good for him. Good for me. You know, good for all of us. Well, and he put on a good show, too. I mean, uh, the guy had quite the the on camera personality as well. So it's it's very cool to hear that he also backed it up with the savvy to make it work. Yep. And a few years later, he bought a big casino out in Nevada and we all brought a bunch of showgirls in a big 
it was a mass tandem demo. Awesome. Uh, and uh, so, so yeah, he, he knew, he knew how to, you know, how to get people's attention. Sure. Sure. So when you sit down, okay, we're going to, we're going to put together a movie and we want it skydiving based drop zone is an iconic movie. And this story is a fantastic story. And the way that it's done is really fun. Where did it all come from? The first thing that I was peddling was much closer to the cutaway storyline, okay. a movie that came a few years later. And that got, uh, you know, they, they grabbed all the, the best parts of it, or, or I should say Hollywood grabbed what Hollywood thought were the best parts of it and threw away what they didn't like, which is exactly what they do. Sure. And, um, and we wrote, then wrote a new story based around th- there was a huge, uh, pers- a, a lot of canopy stacking in the first one. And it was explained as, oh, as the only way that you could get uh, you could fly a further distance if you stacked your canopies and that was the trick and only a few people were good enough to do it. And that would be the, the lawman's uh, clue that would bring him to the source of who the actual bad skydivers were and stuff sure. like that. And sure. then it morphed a dozen times, uh, you know, through the rewrites. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to stay on the writing team through all the rewrites because I was the, you know, the technical guy. Sure. And so even though my best friends and writing teammates got canned, I was able to stay on as the next guy came in and the next writer and the next writer, which is what Hollywood does. They go through dozens of them, but I was able to to keep a grip um, and keep my position there as the technical advisor. So now as the technical advisor, uh, I can think back uh, to the movie where there's a few obvious um, times that Hollywood did exactly what Hollywood does and kind of stretches the truth quite a bit. Um, Did you have to fight to keep it as realistic as you could in regard to the skydiving? Uh, Not really, only because they don't listen. I mean, you, you you can throw a temper tantrum or scream. I mean, I think there's shots where Wesley is crawling toward the door and his chest strap isn't hooked up or there, there's all kinds of, uh, you know, gaffes in the whole thing. Sure. Um, but they, they really liked the idea that, well, there was a little bit of uh, parachute drug smuggling in, in the movie that, yeah. that was, that was the reason that one of the bad guys killed another one of the bad guys. That was the, right. the fake story that they put out. Um, to cover up their their real you know nefarious deeds sure and sure. just things like uh you know they read in one of our earlier drafts that the guy on top of a canopy stack is the guy who steers and it doesn't matter what the guy on the bottom does he's helpless he's he's at the mercy of the of the guy on top right. and so they said, oh okay well we're going to turn that into an assassination and so uh, I got to do that stunt. I was playing Gary Busey and nice. Rusty Best, Rusty Best, who works at PD, uh, former Golden Knight. He was he was on the bottom. And uh, so, you know, that's that's how Hollywood thinks. They, sure. they take something that they think is cool and then they try to turn it into a plot point to turn the story. And so sure. Gary Busey drags one of his uh, one of his bad guys that had made a boo boo and he dragged him into uh, a power station and electrocuted him for it. That one, it's it was really, really funny because, of course, uh, I watched the movie uh, well before I was a jumper and then uh, became a skydiver, became a tandem instructor eventually and had gone back and watched the movie years later. And I got to admit, I was rolling on the floor laughing with some of the stuff that's there, but it's still I mean, one of the best Scott Evans based movies ever. It's so fun. It, 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 and and it's filled with mistakes. You know, there's, there's a place where the turbo Porter rolls up and you hear the sound of a, you know, I don't know what, but it's not a turbo Porter. It's It's a a piston. Yeah. And, you know, just all kinds of things like that. Um, But again, the, the idea is to try to get skydiving, in front of as many people as possible. And we were really lucky. We had uh, a guy named Patrick de Gallardana, an old roommate of mine, who did a Reebok commercial. And no one in the outside community had seen sky surfing. Mm. And he just lit it up in this Reebok commercial. 
that everyone was talking about. And then we had point break, terminal velocity, and drop zone all come out like within 18 months of each other. Yeah. And the uh, the the industry really exploded there for, for a while. Everybody was buying more tandem rigs and hiring more tandem instructors and people were moving you know, from Florida up to up north during the summer so that they could handle this, this uh, wave of interest. Sure. And then sure. unfortunately, it died down after and suddenly there were too many planes and too many drop zones and too much gear. And, and, uh, and we had a kind of uh, recession, if you will, within the industry. Sure. But sure. to be part of that, to be part of that big boom was, you know, was really satisfying. Well, I mean, I'm one of the generation that got bit by that particular bug because all those movies came out and I was very influenced by all of them. I mean, just the visuals alone, forget the gaffes and, and how goofy some of the stuff turns out in the final cut, the actual free fall scenes and the actual skydiving stuff just blew me away like it did a whole lot of people. And I'm one of the lucky ones that that uh, stuck with it and kept going. Yeah, we did a uh, we did a 31 way in that uh movie mm. and all of the hollywood experts you know the helicopter pilots and all these people who wanted to tell management that they were this experts on the show uh said that we shouldn't do that scene that we were going to end up you know jumping for a week and we wouldn't be able to complete the first formation and we put uh jack jeffries in the center of a i think it's a nine-way star that's built around him mm. And then we built a 20-something star around the nine-way star. And then we had the 20-way star and Jack spin in one direction while the nine-way spun in the other direction. And Norman Kent did, I think it's in that movie, he did this new thing where you flip on your back and shoot up. Because <laughs> remember, we, we, weren't, we weren't doing that back then. Right. That, was, that was really a leading-edge innovation there, the idea that Norman could flip on his back and still remain stable and, and, you know, keep us in the frame. And uh, so it was really satisfying to show all those uh, naysayers that the skydiving guys could do what they came to do. Sure. Well, and I've been lucky enough on the podcast to talk to a few people that have been in and around it. I had Mo Valletto on talking about some of the stuff that he's done uh, and uh, a couple of active stunt people now. And it's always funny to hear a non-jumping Hollywood side that has no clue what's going on, not want to listen to the people that literally do this for a living. Yep. It's they're, they're all they're all experts out there and they're all trying to protect their what they see as their territory. The best Mo story was he was doubling an actor. Uh, was it uh, Jeter's? A anyway, the, the actor that Mo was doubling was an Academy Award nominee. He was a phenomenal actor. Yes. He died of AIDS a few years later. But at that time, uh, and Mo was the right height and they cut his hair to match. Uh, they cut Mo's hair to match this guy. And, but this guy was a jumper. This actor had like 50 jumps. Right. And so we put him on the front of a tandem and Rusty stuck him out the door and he screamed and yelled, you know, uh, doing his acting performance as someone who didn't want to jump. But right. in reality, he loved it. But he's screaming no, and, and we popped we popped the baggage door off the back of Mr. Douglas so that Norman could stick a camera out aft of the door. Mm. You know, and, and so then then Rusty turns uh the actor straight toward the camera and falls on his back so that Norman can be right in his face. And uh we sent the dailies back to Paramount Pictures. You know, it's a big $72 million investment, and they sent us this fax congratulating us. Guy, you're the greatest. Where did you ever get a Michael Jeter double? He looks exactly <laughs> like him. You know, it's incredible. We can't believe it. And that's because we did. We used the real actor, uh, which is amazing. And I mean, I I was lucky enough to get Mo on the podcast and and talk to him about some of that stuff. And he talked about some of the jumps that he did and his involvement in the film. And I mean, you knew Mo. You knew Mo. I mean, the guy had a way with telling a story for sure. He, he, he got us through all the base jumps, whether it was him on camera or not. Sometimes it was uh, another time it was uh, Patrick Swayze's brother, Donnie Swayze, right. who's you know, still a member of our team. And, uh, and 
the, the, the hardest thing for Mo is that he had to go on the front of, I mean, it had to be 60 tandem jumps, <laughs> you know, and, you know, as a, as an experienced jumper, being on the front of a tandem is not fun. No. And I mean, and the guy, the guy that was on the back, uh, Utah, Steve, you know, he's a great tandem master and, you know, nailed the top of the building every time, but still it's hard to be on the front of a tandem. And yeah. so Mo really earned his pay on that show. Well, I'm assuming you guys were jumping, uh, what vectors or strongs, uh, vectors. So I was hanging a little bit head low, not the most comfortable harnesses in the world. Those are the ones that I learned how to do tandems on. So yeah, yeah. I can imagine 30 rides on the front in in an old vector harness Woo. and landing, landing on the rooftops of skyscrapers Yeah, <laughs> where, where if you missed, where if you missed, you know, you were going to die. Yeah, <laughs> It was, it, there were no outs. There was no, okay. If you missed the building, you just go over to this big golf course over here. There wasn't any of that. It was uh, downtown Miami and downtown uh, Woodland Hills. And I mean, you, you had to, you had to land on these buildings. Uh, there was, there was no out. And that's one of the coolest things about those films, too, is that this is well before CGI, where nowadays half of the shit that you guys had to do for real, they just computer generate. Oh, absolutely. And and the thing that the thing that hurts the worst is when they show computer generated canopy deployments. Oh, they're so they're so awful. Yeah. And if you if you look at drop zone when the when the when the 31 way uh, is filmed. They had us all scatter as if we had tracked off, but they all had us, they had us all scatter, but stay in the frame. And then we were all supposed to dump in, you know, a two and a half second window. Right. And we did, <laughs> but we got stunt pay for it because everybody was, would land and we were all shaking. And of course, Hollywood, they say, okay, we, we got to go up and do it a couple more times. And we're going, Oh God, we know? just barely survived that one. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I had the uh, the opportunity to fly um, for one of the Mission Impossible movies where they had done the skydive over um, what was supposed to be Paris. Uh, but we did all the jumps over the desert. And I remember watching the dailies and Tom Cruise actually does all the jumps. And the, the video is fantastic footage. Um, it was shot by Craig O'Brien, who, of course, is an incredible camera flyer. And I was super excited because I was part of it. And then the movie comes out and they took this beautiful, real footage of a great skydive done by Tom Cruise and superimposed it over a fake Paris and made the entire thing look like crap. <laughs> it's 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 the saddest thing. And, you know, what they're what this what the computer effects are really good at is, you know, putting a, a big building where there isn't a building or, uh, you know, er erasing a traffic light where there really is a traffic light. You know, that type of stuff they do quite well. But, man, when they try to do free fall with actors and when they try to do deployments and landings and all of that stuff, it, it just it, it looks horrible and the audience knows it's fake. Yeah. And so what's nice about, you know, point break and drop zone and, and terminal velocity, these kinds of movies is that for the most part, it was real. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people don't realize at least a lot of the younger uh, listeners don't realize that Patrick Swayze was doing his own jumps in point break. Yep. I yep. mean, taught by Jeff Jones and his, and his brother, Donnie. Yeah, I mean, he was an accomplished skydiver, and and uh, uh, I remember going back and watching that footage before and after I was a skydiver going, wait, shit, I think that's real, and this is, I'm really going to date myself, this is before you could pick up your phone and Google to find out, <laughs> you know, of course, and then you find out, holy shit, he really did do all those jumps, and then I find out that he was an active jumper in Paris, and his brother was, and it was super cool. Yep, and they were, uh, he was on the Oprah Winfrey show. And his brother called in as a call-in guest on the show and told him that, that, you know, he was, he was at the drop zone and Patrick went into this whole thing about, you know, how much he loves jumping and how he's going to leave the show to go straight to the drop zone. How cool uh, is that? You know, and it was, it, he, it really helped the sport. I mean, that, that scene for whatever reason, you know, you take, you take all the scenes in terminal velocity, drop zone, cutaway, you know, I've, I've jumped as Sylvester Stallone. I've jumped as Arnold Schwarzenegger. None of them, none of them triggered as many first jump courses or tandem jumps as point break. 
Yeah. There was something about that location, that lake. And I don't know if it was the dialogue, you know, they had a two minute skydive where they talked the whole time, but whatever it was that, and, and there were some years, what years would this have been? Uh, This would have been 90, I I think 96 or 97. And I think that, I think that the drop zone owners were manning their phones when point break came on HBO because they noticed an uptick in phone calls where people literally saw that scene and grabbed the phone and, and called to make a first jump reservation. I bet. Well, you know, I I think one of the big things was you had uh, Patrick Swayze. He's got that super cool surfer, long hair. He's got just his Krups goggles on and a rig and you know, goes backwards out the door. And then of course, cut to this amazing scenery and the two minute free fall and all that stuff. But it was so engaging. I mean, it was just such a really cool visual and I believe it was over Lake Powell. Um, Yes. It's just a gorgeous spot. So, I mean, I think all those things combined just made it, uh, you know, a, a can't miss. Yeah, it, it was it was a beautiful scene. And and then they brought it back at the end of the movie. So there were two full skydiving uh, scenes in Point Break. And people think that it's a, a, a skydiving movie. But if you actually watch the movie, it's a surf movie. Yep. The skydiving footage so overwhelms the surfing footage that... Uh, that people remember it in their minds as a skydiving flick. Oh, absolutely. I ended up doing a, a couple of tandems for, uh, I'm sure you've seen the TV show Mythbusters. They busted the uh, point break myths. And I took, um, <laughs> I took two of the guys. You got to oh, send me that. Oh, I will. It's, it's great. So they, they wanted to see if you could have a, a, a 50 second free fall from 4,000 feet. So they chucked Buster out of the plane at uh, foreground and let him go in. Uh, <laughs> then they wanted to see if you could talk in free fall. And if you could catch somebody, if you jumped out 15 seconds later, and of course, two of the three myths we busted because Buster died and you can't hear a damn thing in free fall. The one that they kind of verified was that you can catch somebody. If you jump out 15 seconds later, it helps if one of them's towing a drogue and the other one is going as fast as humanly possible, but you know, <laughs> but it was fun. It was fun. I mean, you know how Mythbusters does stuff. So it was, so it was very entertaining. Hey, you want to, you want to hear a weird one? Uh, Please. How, how skydiving can, you know, take you to the edge of the human experience or what, however you want to put yeah, it. Absolutely. When you mentioned talking in free fall, it took me to a, a jump. It was October or no, it was August 8th, 1988. So it was 8-8-88. And we're at this thing called the uh, Freak Brother Convention, oh. which, which is now, what do they call it now? Jump, jump Fest or? Um, uh, Summerfest. Summerfest. Okay, so Summerfest used to be called the Freak Brother Convention. And we were going for the 144-way world record. It was the largest formation at that time. Mm. And- uh, Roger Nelson and I were the, the captains of that uh, effort, along with Roger Ponce. And we got it in our dumb heads that the easiest formation to build would be a diamond, a, a big flat blanket with no hole in the center. Right. And because earlier that spring, we had built the first 81-way diamond. We built the first 64-way diamond, the first six, uh, 81-way diamond, and the first 64-way jewel, all within like three weeks of each other. So we're just busting all these records. And our logic was, well, if these are so easy, then maybe we shouldn't go for a 150 way. Maybe we should go for a 144 way diamond. And we didn't know that, you know, any of the physics of whether there was, you know, like a problem with high pressure air being built up underneath this thing. And, and I mean, we still don't know. Everybody's got their theories. <laughs> right. But, but one thing that we do know is that Bruce Turner and I were facing each other in the base four-way diamond that's in the center of that 144-way diamond. And it was his job to look behind me to see if anybody had gone low. And it was my job to look behind him to see if anybody had gone low, because if anybody had gone low, we would break off the formation early to try to increase the safety factor. Sure. 
But, but if he didn't see anybody behind me and I didn't see anybody behind him, we didn't break it off. We held it because we needed that three seconds in order to establish the record, even if we sucked it down lower than we should have. And so we're, we're looking underneath each other to see if anybody is low behind us. And we're in our excitement, we're shouting to each other. And of course we can't hear, you know, anything, but we're, we're mouthing the words, are you good? And he's, and he's looking at me and nodding his head. He's going, yeah, I'm good. Are you good? And when the final outside row came on, going from a hundred way diamond to a 144 way diamond, instantly we could talk. And we didn't, we weren't even shouting. We were talking to each other. And he said, yeah, are you done? He goes, yeah, it looks good to me. How about you? I said, yeah, no, we're, we're, everybody's in. And then as soon as we, we kicked our legs to get everybody to, you know, to leave on the outside. And as soon as the outside row left, then it was normal free fall again. But at 144, we could talk. It was really spooky. That's bizarre. I can't yeah, even, fun. I can't wrap and my it, head around why that would be possible, but that's cool. It's, it's that there, there was no disturbed air over us because the outer rim of this giant blanket uh, created an echo chamber or whatever, an acoustic right. chamber above our heads. And we could, we could talk. Wow. And it happened on three jumps in a row because, you know, it took us a couple of times to get every last guy in. Sure. But as soon as that sure. outer row filled in, we could communicate. That's bizarre. Yeah, it was cool. The only time I've ever heard anybody in free fall was off of a helicopter. And we weren't even thinking about the fact that we're going from zero. And as we let go of the helicopter and start falling, I remember being more shocked than anything, not about the jump or where we were, but that I could hear my buddy laughing. Yep. <laughs> Because it was and just the strangest thing. Occasionally, a pilot will hear a tandem student, you know, stepping off the step. <laughs> will hear a shriek. Oh, but, I've heard, uh, I've heard them scream a million times. <laughs> that's that. That's been my favorite pastime for about sixteen years now. <laughs> listen, listen to the tandem passengers scream. Now you've got um, more projects in the works. Not like you haven't already accomplished enough, but you've got more stuff coming up, don't you? Yeah, we've got another movie. Um, and a and a we're launching a new company based on a new way to make movies and this new way was built entirely around skydiving and skydiving big ways in oh, wow. particular and so uh what we learned when when Norman and I hopped over you know to the to the uh film to the feature film industry to the hollywood industry we we saw them you know, wasting just tens of millions of dollars on shots that never make it into the movie, scenes that never make it into the movie, or methods that Norman and I knew were never going to work in the first place. And because he and I had come from this background where you do this extensive rehearsal, you 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 pre-visualize the uh, outcome and and pre-visualize is just a, a fancy way of saying dirt dive. You know, sure. when we dirt sure. dive, when, when we get together to choreograph a skydive uh, for a, a, a recreational jump on the weekend at the drop zone, you don't sit down in a circle and talk about what you're going to do. You, you stand up and you, and you, you, you dirt dive, you, you choreograph the thing um, because that tells you everything you need to know about what's going to happen in the air. Sure. And so we, we got to Hollywood and these guys are just jabbering at us all the time and waving their arms around in the air rather than simply showing us a picture or a video or allowing us to rehearse it. And, uh, and so when we started to take over higher and higher positions, you know, Norman and I were first hired as stuntmen but then we became, you know, Norman became the, the director of photography and I became a, you know, a writer and a director and Craig uh, Frank and Jeff Jones became producers and BJ became, you know, uh, stunt supervisors and stunt coordinators. So as we all moved up the ladder, at first we did everything the Hollywood way because we figured that if they're wasting all this money, then let's let them waste it on us. Sure. And, sure. and they did. And, and it worked, you know, like uh, for example, I made half a dozen 
base jumps in cliffhanger and only one of them is in the movie. Right. And yet I got paid for the other five. And, and so, you know, that, that philosophy kind of worked, but as we, as we started moving up the ladder, we discovered that if we can wrangle and wrestle these scenes away from these so-called Hollywood experts, not only can we put more money in our pocket, but we can do it by saving them money Mm. because when they waste $10 million, they don't waste it all on us. They just hose it all over the universe and, and none of us gets to keep any of it. You know? Right. And so we, we devised this system based on this thing called previous technology. It's a, a low cost, very rapid iteration animation technology. Okay. And okay. so basically we make a cartoon of the movie before we shoot the movie. And then we don't have to go out and shoot a, a thousand different angles to figure out what we want because we already know what we want because we did it in our cartoon. Sure. So that's that's the short version. And so now we're finally launching a company based on this these skydiver innovations. And so our job is to our mission is to stop asking Hollywood to do these movies for us and to just take over the whole process and do it our way. Sure. And so sure. we want to make. Uh, an entire skydiving based movie, you know, like, like drop zone, like terminal velocity, like cutaway, you know, to make one of, one of that species, but to do it at a much, much higher budget level yet without actually spending that much money Mm. because these, these technologies allow you to magnify your budget in a way. Sure. And so we're doing, we're, we're, we're aiming at this, this movie called Vegas falls and it's, you know, loaded with, wind tunnels and base jumps and wingsuits and, you know, everything you can name. And uh, we want to get the skydiving community behind it. We need to, we're going to buy a bunch of gear. We need a bunch of instructors to train our actors. We need a bunch of stunt doubles. We need what are called aerial extras, you know, where you have a couple hundred people in the air. They're actually extras in a way, but they obviously have to be great skydivers. And, uh, the interesting thing about the way we're launching this company is we're launching it on a platform called startengine.com. Okay. Have you ever heard of this? I haven't. Please tell me. It's it's owned by one of the billionaires on Shark Tank. Okay. You know, Shark Tank, that, that show where sure. people come and pitch their businesses. Well, he owns this platform where startups can sell their stock on this this platform of his and he handles all the sec regulations and there's there's all this uh accounting and legal work that would have to be done that your average entrepreneur startup really isn't sophisticated enough to handle but he does that part for you and of course he takes you know a small cut but he makes his money because of the scale of the whole thing Mm. and so we are launching on this uh, on this platform called StartEngine.com in just a week or two, and so not only can the skydivers watch the development of this movie and come out and be in this movie, but they can actually own the movie. Wow! <laughs> you know, own own the company that's making the movie, and <laughs> you can do it for a little bit or you can do it for a lot. And but the point is, you can be a part. Sure. And so we think we're hoping that the skydiving community will at least go look at it. And, uh, uh, you know, buy some stock if, if they're psyched for us or at least root for us and, and get the word out so that somebody else buys some stock and we're going to make this movie. That's epic. Well, I mean, the fact yeah. of the matter is, especially when it comes to stuff like skydiving, Hollywood seems to just fuck it up, not make it better. <laughs> I mean, they, they do, they do not make it better and, yeah. and they're, they're, they're clueless. And we thought on cutaway that by having us in some of the key positions, that that would be enough that that we could that we could save them from themselves. And we were wrong. You know, I mean, what we did do on cutaway is we proved that it could be done at a lower price. Sure. People people don't know this, but drop zone costs seventy two million dollars and cutaway costs nine. Wow. And yet there's more there's more skydiving in the $9 million movie than in the $72 million movie. Wow. The problem is that Hollywood was still in charge of everything that wasn't the skydiving. Sure. 
And so now our mission on this one, on Vegas Falls with this startengine.com thing is we're having skydivers wall to wall. I Which mean, is, we're not, no, no one other than us is going to touch this movie. How epic and, is that? Yeah. Yeah. So we're psyched and we're, and we really need the skydiving community to get behind it in whatever way, you know, they, they'd like. Sure. Now, what kind of a, what kind of a time frame are we talking about? When are you guys hoping to be able to uh, start going into production? Do you guys already have a script and all that stuff or is it? We already have, we already have the script. It's written by uh, myself and Peter Barsakini, the same guys who wrote Drop Zone. Awesome. And the same guys who wrote Shadow Ops. Most people don't know it, but there was a television series pilot made off of the success of Drop Zone. Mm. Drop Zone was a real weird uh, creature in that it did not do well at the box office. Michael Douglas and Demi Moore came out with a movie on the same day Mm. and people flocked to it and (laughs) they flocked away from Drop Zone. So Drop Zone didn't do, I mean, it didn't do horrible, but it didn't do great at the box office. Mm. But it had a, it's, it still has a really strong cable life. They still play it today on oh, HBO. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and the other thing is, is that the, the video store business was just getting off the ground in those days. Mm. And I remember the first, the price of a Drop Zone VHS tape was $135. Oh god. Can you imagine you know buying a videotape for $135? Wow. But yet that's what it cost because in those days the studios thought we're going to get top dollar for our video because most of the people buying the video are going to rent it and we're not getting a taste of that. Right. And and so Drop Zone had this incredible incredible uh video store life where they had to order more videos because the videos were wearing out. <laughs> and so as soon as drop zone would come back into the store, it would go back out again. Hmm. And, uh, and so we're with this new picture, we, we know what the formula for success is. Not only is, is it to make the movie with all these new technologies that we've got, but it's to have skydivers uh, in the left seat and the right seat and every seat. Sure. Which is amazing. I mean, I think yeah. back to, well, drop zone, uh, and, uh, cutaway are both cult classics. I mean, um, I don't know a single skydiver that hasn't seen them multiple times. Um, even with the gaffes and all that stuff and the Hollywood doing what they did, people still love the movie. So the idea of somebody being able to do it properly is incredible you think about like the new point break the only thing i liked about the new point break were the wingsuiting scenes for multiple reasons one because they were incredibly shot and two because those were friends of mine and i i knew what went into it and i knew how incredibly well thought out it was which made it that much more impressive and there was no doubt that it was real And nowadays, with the YouTube generation being what it is that has access to so much of what we do, they'll spot a fake in a heartbeat. So you guys being able to do it the right way with the real people. Amazing. Yeah, it's 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 going to be good. And it's really not that that tough to imagine, because you look at like, let's say the last five skydiving scenes that Hollywood has put out. Uh, They did one in was it called Gray Man? Yep. They did a big skydiving scene. And then there was this other Mark Wahlberg movie with the new Spider-Man kid. Yep. 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 They, they did a movie that had a big skydiving scene. So if you go back through the last five skydiving scenes, all these movies had, you know, $150 million budgets. And yet the best skydiving footage is on YouTube from <laughs> yep. us, from the skydiving community. Yes. You know, yeah. and that, that isn't right. No. <laughs> you know? Why should the best wingsuiting be on Facebook, you know, guys that are doing it for free. And yet when Hollywood comes out and does it, they can't do as good a job as, as the guys that are doing it for free. Yeah. And not even close. I mean, it's, it's painfully obvious that Hollywood talks to skydivers last when they do anything like that, if they talk to us at all. And so with, with Norman and I, you know, at the helm of this thing, and I, I mean, and everybody, BJ, Shuby, Tom Sanders, you know, all, all of us old guard, we're just going to recruit the hell out of the, the young guys 
and get all their best stuff and uh, and wrap it into a into a movie, which is absolutely epic. Now, because of that, I'm going to ask. It's a perfect transition to find out. People are listening right now, and they are interested in the company. They are interested in being a part of the film. They are interested in helping out. How do they get a hold of you or find out uh, more about this specifically? Where do they go to send in an application or a resume or a demo reel or something like that? Okay, the the, the first and foremost thing that I that I've got to get out there, and I don't mean to ever sound like a salesman, but I, I got to say it is startengine.com. Cool. Because if we don't get funded, none of this happens. Sure. And so the, the the most important thing is that we get the word out. And I don't mean to, I'm not saying to stick my hand in the pockets of skydivers, but we, the skydiving community, have to get this word out. Sure. So even if sure. you if you can't afford to buy a few shares of, of the stock, please help us push it with your social media and with your family and friends so that so that we get to, you know, to, 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 to bat, if you will. Sure. Sure. And, and then from there, the, uh, our, our website is synologic.pro. It's not.com it's dot pro. So C I N E L O G I C dot pro. Okay. And that's the company that will be being sold on startengine.com. And so either either way, either route gets you to to me and the team. And, uh, you know, I I would love to have everybody's reels and resumes and 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 all that. But our first mission, the first point in this skydive is for us to get funding. Sure. And so it's all about startengine.com. And that should be happening in just about a week or two. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So now. um startengine.com is what they need to be keeping their eyes on and telling everybody about, even if they can't afford to to chip in, they can still help spread the word. Hopefully if this goes the way that it's supposed to, then they can start bugging me and you to send those demo reels and all that stuff. Cause uh, it sounds like it's going to be an amazing project. Precisely. And and when you say chip in, uh, I just wanted to clarify that this is not crowdfunding. You know, like when, when one of us, prangs in from a bad hook turn and sure. they put crowdfunding up to donate for this guy's medical bills or, or, or what have you. This is not that kind of crowdfunding. This is buying stock. Awesome. You are an investor. You are an owner in what we're launching here. And so it, you know, it can be, it can be really fun. Absolutely. Well, I mean, just the opportunity to try and be a part of something where skydivers get to represent themselves the right way. You know, and and not have the gaffes because it's done by a bunch of jumpers that no, wait, that's bullshit. It needs to be done this way or that way. And that's pretty spectacular. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Absolutely. Now, I, I tell you what, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to sit down with me and tell me not only about your start and everything, but especially about the new project coming up. I have a feeling I'm going to need to hit you up for more times on the podcast because if this thing keeps rolling, I'm going to want updates. Very good. Uh, we'd love to come back, especially when we go live. You know, like I said, I'm saying a week or two, but I, I don't know exactly. But I will get I will get that uh, date to you. And uh, yeah, we want to get me back on here as soon as we can, especially if we start getting some momentum from the skydivers. Um, the, the expression they use uh, is that nothing draws a crowd like a crowd. And so we need to we need to trigger this uh, this snowball effect very quickly when the time comes. Awesome. And so. So, yes, I would love to come back. And, uh, yeah, we didn't cover half of the stuff I've seen. Oh, <laughs> no, no. Well, <laughs> believe me, there's there's going to need to be a round two because I know you've got a shitload of stories that we did not delve into at all. But I really wanted to talk about the new project. So I'll get you to stay oh, on even after we stop recording so I can get some more info from you. But again, thank you so much for for taking the time and fingers crossed. I hope it goes big. Thanks, man. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye bye. And there you have it. Another episode of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void brought to you as always by, and say it with me, fuck yeah, NZ Aerosports. Head to nzaerosports.com. 
by Pussfoot. That's right. Head to Pussfoot.com, the Extreme Sports Collective, and check out everything they've got to offer. By SummitParachuteSystems.com. Jarrett Martin and the family cranking out amazing pilot rigs, as well as incredible rigging courses. And now joining the Lunatic team, it's the one and only Tony Suits. You know them, you love them. Head to TonySuit.com. Check out all the amazing standards, as well as the new incredible signature line they've got going on. And as for us, the Lunatic Fringe is now on YouTube. That's right, you're going to have the chance to put faces to the audio by heading to YouTube.com and looking up the Lunatic Fringe Podcast. It's easy. Hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, check out all the amazing videos from the previous guests that we've had, as well as new and upcoming interviews on video. As always, I am the fucking pilot. Head to thefuckingpilot.net or theprincesspilot.com. Thanks for joining. We'll see you next time around.